Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. Welcome to episode number 98 of the GateWorld Podcast. I'm Darren. And I'm David. And this is a show where two nerds talk about Stargate. This week it's going to be three nerds because we have a very special guest joining us for our discussion on the science of SGU. Diane Turnshack, an astronomer and writer, will be with us in just a few minutes. But first, Mr. David, how's your week going? Week is going good, getting ready for Comic-Con next week. I enjoyed our our week off of the podcast, but (laughs) I think you have a little bit of bad news to report for us. You were going to take the week off and go to GateCon. Oh, I didn't even think about the uh, that. Yeah, I was going to go to GateCon, and I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, got to the airport on time. Got to the, Oh, you actually went to the airport? I went to the airport, got to the oh, kiosk, okay. and um, didn't have my passport. And uh, only then did I remember that I needed it, and that it was in my safe at home, and that I hadn't seen my keys to my safe since I had moved from Phoenix to L.A. Drove home, looked for the keys, could not find them. And have you found them since? No. No. Oh, boy. So your passport is locked away? Yeah, it's locked away. I'm going to have to call oh. Black & Decker and get replacement keys for it. It's just a standard fire safe. They had already rolled away my, my bag, my checked luggage, at, oh. uh, at oh. the airport. So I had to go back to the airport, get the checked luggage, and drive back home. So, oh, my goodness. So, yeah, it was... Uh, An adventure. It was pretty adventurous, yeah. But I think, by and large... Uh, I, I was just doing too much that week, and uh, I think by and large it was a good thing that I stayed here because I got a lot done, and I got a lot of stuff uh, taken care of that I wouldn't otherwise have. Well, it was the last GateCon, uh, at least for the time being, and I hope that everybody who did make it had a great time. Yes, I think they did. Um, the other news, the little Stargate news on, on the horizon this past week is we have confirmation that there is going to be uh, an SGU-SGA crossover episode. There are going to be two actors from the Atlantis cast, and we don't know who yet, that will be appearing in episode 15 of season two, Seizure. Okay. Do you have any sort of uh, speculation as to if you were the uh, these writers and wanted to pick a couple of Atlantis cast members to bring over? Who do you think makes sense? I think you can that? almost guarantee that David Hewitt is going to be one of the two. Okay, yeah. I don't know about the second I, I would say Joe Flanagan originally, but I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, the the re- relationship between him and the studio has been interesting. So I, I hope it's them. I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah, they would seem to be the two most popular actors for sure. It's fun for viewers for sure, but one thing that uh, this was announced on Joe Malazzi's blog, uh, executive producer, one thing that he's pointed out is, you know, we're going to get a decision about the season three pickup, whether or not the show's going to get renewed probably after the first 10 have aired in the fall. So this is not like a, a ratings ploy to try and get Atlantis fans to come back. Uh, by the time this airs in 2011, the show's fate will already have been decided. But the question is, as to who it is going to be, uh, and I don't know, there's, there's supposed to be a press release coming, so yeah, that might even beat this podcast uh, to the website. But um, it seems to be, are the characters going to show up on Destiny, like through Communication Stones? Or That's are what I suspected. On, on Earth, like we've seen Daniel and Jack. So if it's Communication Stones, it makes sense that it's, it's probably going to be some, some super expert like McKay. Yeah, I would suspect that it would be that. Something that uh, GateWorld readers have pointed out to me that I didn't realize, uh, I didn't think about offhand, was you can't take somebody like, like John Shepard and send him to Destiny by the Communication Stones 
hoping that he can use his super-duper ancient genes because they don't go with you. His, his ancient genes in his body would not go mm-hmm. with him. Mm-hmm. And this, is, this predates the ATA gene anyway, so that makes that irrelevant. Right, right. All the Destiny technology predates it by several million years. Yep, we'll definitely have more to talk about Season 2 when Season 2 gets here. That's, that'll be Episode 15, uh, airing sometime next year. The main discussion. We're joined by Miss Diane Turncheck. She's an astronomer and a science fiction author who teaches astronomy at the University of Pittsburgh, the Community College at Allegheny County, and Carnegie Mellon University. At St. Vincent College, she teaches both astronomy and creative writing and also hosts a monthly public lecture series on astronomy at Allegheny Observatory. And on top of all that, she is a listener of the GateWorld podcast. Diane, welcome. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. Smart people listen to this podcast? <laughs> yes, we do. I am amazed. Diane, tell us about your um, how you got involved in everything that you do. It's quite a resume that you have, your love of science fiction. Tell us, about, tell us a little bit about it. Uh, well, I started out seven years old and wondering where I was in the universe. So I wanted to know where, where everything is in the universe. And that, that desire to know where I was located drove me. Bachelor's degree, master's degree stopped at that level. And then I had a little baby boy, and it was just wonderful. So I stayed home with him. And then I had another little baby boy and another little baby boy and another little baby boy. <laughs> oh, man. And then I went back to work. (laughs) Um, So I started working, but with a master's degree, it's very hard to get a a professorship. And so I teach at, you only listed a few of the places I teach at. I actually teach at a few more places than that, all at the same time. And uh, while I was home with the children, though, I was twiddling my thumbs which is not much fun because I really want to be doing something other than changing diapers and <laughs> feeding mm. people. Uh, so I started writing because I figured I could do that at home with the children. And I had never written anything before. I had gone through school back in the day when creative writing wasn't a desired uh, topic cross-curriculum. And I just never wrote, never took any English classes. All through college, I just took science classes. And so I wrote a story, and I was so proud of it. I started a writer's group to help me critique it. And they critiqued it. I brought it back. They said, send it out. And I sent it to Analog and sold it. Uh, Analog Magazine is the longest-running science fiction magazine in the world. Um, Over 60 years, they've been going every month. Uh, except for the issue that's two months at a time. And I was so pleased, and I wrote another one and sent it there, and they bought it. And I thought, <laughs> wow, this, this was easy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I've sold some more stories since then, but right away I turned around and started to try to help people write targeting teens. So that's where I am this week. That's where you're calling me um, in the middle of is teaching at my alpha workshop for teenage writers in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And after I talk to you, I get to go pick up Holly Black at the airport, our, our second guest after Timothy Zahn. Oh, Timothy Zahn. I know awesome. that name. Yeah, his Star Wars author. I actually cornered him last night and said, tell me everything you know about Warp drive, hyperdrive, FTL. <laughs> I wanted to talk about uh, SGU uh, tonight because SGU is uh, is going in a direction of, dare I say it, more more real science fiction. I think, 
Um, they're they're really pushing the envelope of what seems to be real. They're out there in the far reaches of the universe. So, bumpy-headed aliens every week doesn't really seem to work. Uh, we've seen a lot more abstract creatures. Um, it's it's far more visceral. I feel. How how do the creatures we've and you you watch Stargate? How how do the creatures we've encountered in SGU reflect what would possibly be out there in the cosmos were destiny real? For me, I think they've done an excellent job of talking about aliens, the blue aliens. Right away, yeah. people might think, well, they're not very creative because they look kind of like us, only blue. Well, bilateral symmetry. That's what people go off of when they're trying to um, criticize aliens. I mean, two arms what, and two legs and one head, What right? counts as, as humanoid? Right, but the fact is that... I mean, first there's convergent evolution. There are many different creatures that have wings, for instance. Wings appear in bats. Wings appear in insects, in birds, in some reptiles in the past. (laughs) And uh, fish sometimes have wings because wings are something that's very useful. And the same thing can be said for eyes. And the same thing can be said for legs as a mode of locomotion. And if indeed these blue aliens, like us, emerged from the sea, that would explain the bilateral symmetry. I mean, think of fish. They're all symmetric on both sides because it helps them to swim very fast. Things like a starfish, anemone, they're not going to move very fast. And Hmm. so these blue aliens, like us, are predators. They, They have that same bilateral structure on the outside, not on the inside. You know, we have a heart on one side, we have a digestive system that's not symmetric. But it doesn't conflict with being alien to have this same shape. Now, I find that immensely interesting because I always assumed that... that creatures on the planet Earth that have two two eyes, a, a, a pair of limbs on each side, you know, wings, very symmetrical. The reason, the, the, perhaps the base reason that we are all very similar to one another in terms of that is because we all came from the same genetic pool on Earth. You know, that and that in, in the most fundamental sense is why we all seem to be, or most of us seem to be designed very similarly. Is that an error? I don't think that's an error, but you can't compare an insect with a mammal and a reptile. They come from different chains down the road. So they have developed the kind of things that are most useful. I mean, eyes, for example, are, are another thing that's useful across all different types of animals here on Earth. It may be that we all develop them to take into account the ambient light from our sun, whereas Mm. an alien's eyes would develop differently depending on what the sun was there. But in general, eyes are useful things. Wow. Now, see, that I find that very interesting. That lends a lot of credence to these creatures. I didn't expect that. Yeah, but bumpy foreheads does not. (laughs) (laughs) No. Bumpy foreheads, no. (laughs) There were a few more aliens that, uh, that the different episodes had. The dinosaur. Okay. You know, that one, that was pretty much there for comic relief, in my opinion, because that would be a hard sell, that that something that was so close to what we used to have on our planet. Really? The big alien T-Rex, you think, was was a little far-fetched? Yeah, I did. I really did. That's too bad. What about the dust storm? 
the the little floating sand dust bugs. Yeah. They were interesting. I have to, I have a quibble with them. Oh, please. Do we say that, please. Do we say yeah. that till the end? <laughs> no. No, no, no. Okay. Well, these dust bugs, I think that they have a problem with conservation of mass. First of all, you have a lot of little bugs and they uh, reproduce by sucking up the water. Water, yeah. And so that that seems to not have this conservation of mass problem. As long as for every molecule of water it turns into a molecule of water in the dust bug's body, then you have no problem or in many other dust bugs' bodies that just form. But you do have a problem with uh, the heavy metals and the other elements that constitute life. In our case on Earth, it's always based around carbon. Where does that come from if you're going to replicate all these many, many little bugs out of water? Unless they have some method of transmuting one element to another, which I find... You know, nuclear physicists might have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. uh, cold fusion does not exist. So they would have to have the power of a sun to change elements. And mm -hmm. I just don't see that happening. It just seems unlikely to me. So if it was maybe water, a water slushy mixed with other chemicals in it, maybe. But just water? Yeah, I find that hard to believe. And a consciousness, all these, all these creatures sharing a collective consciousness, able to, to mimic the shape of a human face, uh, very much working in concert with one another, perhaps not necessarily multiple beings, but one being. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's cool. I would love to see that. <laughs> yes, this is. Um, John Scalzi is the creative yes. consultant on the show. And um, someone asked him, whenever possible, he said, it's nice to get your facts right, or at least not them, get them you know, so wrong that they destroy your enjoyment of the show, or something like that. You're, what he was trying to say is that you can't really have a fictional, wonderful show like this without bending a few rules. Mm. It wouldn't be interesting if it was 100% accurate. They'd just be sitting around doing nothing. So I'm okay with bending a few physics rules as long as you can get through the whole episode and enjoy it tremendously and then maybe afterwards you're sitting out you're having a drink and you go wait what that seems okay to me so you thought the the, the sharing consciousness was something that was harder to believe not harder to believe per se but i find it interesting that you know they they raise those questions you know you you see the creature for the first time in in air part three and it's just a swirling dust storm. Part of us wants to know, is it even real? Is Scott imagining it? And we, we later, and it's, it's perhaps led him to what he is looking for. It is perhaps the, the, uh, it is, it is perhaps taking the shape of, of his, uh, adoptive father, the, the priest, Father George. Um, and then it appears later, later on the show. Um, in water. The, right. That's right. So it's possibly, an intelligent being um it definitely responds to threats by weapons fire uh so it um i just i just found it find it to be the most interesting race that we've uh, uh encountered so far as far as the collective consciousness goes that was what was interesting to me was the idea uh when we first saw it in air part three we were calling it the dust double life form but the idea that maybe it's life forms plural that they're tiny little mm -hmm. you know grain of sand microscopic life forms that operate sort of like a school of fish but on on an exponential level of 
of being able to sort of have a hive mind and, and work together to to uh, a common goal. They recognize Scott. So mm-hmm. all these things I found to be immensely interesting. Yeah, I think that's one of the most creative ones that they have on here. I, I was really happy to see that episode. There were a few other ones. The, the alien creatures that attach on the back of the neck... The, the, yeah, the ticks. The ticks. Oh, yeah. ticks, yeah, from pain. That, again, you have the same intelligence, the same drive towards self-preservation, because they're mm. creating the illusion that will make the person want to keep them. That is true, yeah. As soon as we find out where they are, you know, on, on where one is on Chloe, and we start to remove it, Senator Armstrong reacts very differently. He says, please don't, don't do this, you know. Um, and then relents in the end. He perhaps comes to terms with the fact that it's going to be removed and treats Chloe differently, becomes much more interested in, in leaving Chloe at peace with herself rather than traumatizing her, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, I would have liked to have explored that one further. And it's a shame that they couldn't just keep some of these on hand in a, in a bay somewhere where they can study things further. I suppose that's never a great idea to keep possibly dangerous alien life forms in your lab (laughs) but still i mean it's a shame that they they got rid of all the little dust bugs onto another planet and they they killed all the hallucination ticks and it's a shame they can't stockpile them for future Mm. use i mean one of the the best things that they have done um the time travel episode called time i guess they did stockpile in that case uh some of the venom from yes. the, of the aliens there that was later useful. So mm-hmm. perhaps they're learning? One of the readers had a point a few weeks ago of the difference between FTL and hyperspace. They were saying that faster than light travel um, is, is crossing every inch. What was it, Darren? Every inch of, of point A to point B? Yeah, it was this idea that... Um, boy, I just love the, the propulsion discussion. Uh, it really makes me feel like I am the sci-fi nerd like to the nth degree because uh, you know when i was in high school my friend and i just had all these conversations about warp drive hey at least you had a friend the speed of light and you know warp travel versus you know 0.99999c um yeah. so in the stargate universe uh the way that the theory goes that we're working with here from a previous caller is that um Hyperspace travel, which we've seen for so many years in an SG-1 and Atlantis, is uh, entering subspace. So, you know, the, the very, very old, tired, not quite accurate description would be, you know, folding space. Um, Daniel has this conversation with Omak in, in Season 1's Enigma about folding space. Um, you know, taking the two points, two ends of the stick and folding them together so that you're not traveling the distance along the stick from one end to the other. Uh, you you get to sneak through subspace and cross through. That's kind of what uh, a wormhole does. Yeah, yeah, like a wormhole. So uh, the the idea with figuring out destiny and uh, the speed of FTL for destiny seems to be that that it's actually it's it's not going through subspace. It's not creating any sort of a tunnel, uh, a, a cheat from one point to the other. But it ha- actually has to cross the distance between stars. It just does it really really fast. 
Right. Most of, most of this is because you have we've been taking into account the length of time that it took Destiny for, to get across this one galaxy. When we get to the episode Lost, we find out that the we've been in one galaxy the entire time through this season. Who knows how long it's actually been in this galaxy? And then in the, in the next episode, we cross the void and we get to another galaxy. Um, so let's let's try to nail this argument once and for all. That in your in your interpretation, the the difference between faster than light propulsion, what what destiny is traveling with versus hyperspace, which is what we've conventionally been using throughout uh, the rest of uh, the franchise. Hyperspace, warp drive, subspace, jump drive, all these. You're going into another dimension, and then coming back. Our space yeah. is folded over and two parts of the space-time continuum are now touching each other. So you can travel, sometimes instantaneously, but in others there's a conduit that you can travel through to get from one to another. So sometimes it's not instantaneous. And I, I happen to think uh, the fact that they have FTL drive and they don't talk about hyperdrive and the fact that it takes some time to travel across, I, I really don't think that it's different. I think this is a hyperdrive that okay. they're just calling FTL. Let's talk about FTL for a sec. The idea is that speed of light is a constant, and it is the speed limit in mm. our universe. But it, it may not be the speed limit in other universes. So if you travel into another universe, you may be able to cross certain space but if you cross that space it still takes time even if you're in another universe i have a feeling that that's where there is there's no time dilation predicted when you're doing hyperspace you know like the time dilation that the general Mm. theory of relativity predicts they're not losing hours when they come back into our universe no we can talk with the communication stones back home everyone's moving at the same rate you know as if they would when we were outside of ftl right well there are certain things in our universe that travel faster than light but you just can't send information that way like you could take a flashlight or one of those cool green lasers and wave it around the clouds Mm. (laughs) and it's actually traveling faster than light, that image of the laser. Or you could take a scissors and close up the two sides of the scissors. Say you had a huge, really long scissors. That connection point where the two scissor parts come together, that could be traveling faster than the speed of light. I mean, it's not that nothing ever travels faster than the speed of light. It's just that this ship in particular... It would be a stretch. I mean, this is the classic definition. A slower-than-light particle with non-zero rest mass requires infinite energy to accelerate to the speed of light. And so Mm -hmm. we don't have infinite energy. Even destiny doesn't have infinite energy. So I don't think we're, we're talking about a way to make the ship travel in our universe faster than the speed of light. Hmm. So you think it is some sort of a subspace or, or other other dimension. There's a book that I would recommend. It's uh, Michio Kaku's Physics of the Impossible. Nice book. He talks about all sorts of things that are classic tropes for science fiction. Mm -hmm. And the way he describes it is that there is a way to do it where you're traveling through a pre-set-up conduit. And it, it would be something 
like a long extended wormhole between two places that's already been set into place. So then it takes it away from being a spaceship that could just go right or left or up or down or anywhere to being, again, more like wormhole, wormhole travel. Mm. But it would travel faster than light. It's well, not that's interesting because we have this this uh, setup with the premise of the show that Destiny is following along the Cedar ships that have gone ahead of it. And it's following more or less, in a, it's going more or less in a straight line following this path. Um, that's maybe compatible with the, with the science that you're positing. Maybe it's the Cedar ships, you know, who knows how they got where they were and how fast they were going. But if the Cedar ships maybe could have even created this conduit that Destiny is now having to follow. Interesting. So it's not necessarily that, that uh, we need to just gain control of the ship and then we can, you know, it's like grabbing the steering wheel. You can go anywhere you want. But even if we gain control of the ship, maybe we would find out that we just have this conduit of subspace that we have to go down. Or up. Maybe we can go both ways on it. Oh, turn around and head the other direction. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that would work mm. very well. Because then you end up where? Mm. Where? <laughs> Home? Hopefully In a number of million years Earth? or so? Yeah. yeah, millions of years later. <laughs> well, okay. I there. think we'll be a little late for dinner. <laughs> They can. I mean, they use it as a ship when they're when they're out of this FTL drive. They can go anywhere they want in the system, if they got control of it. But while they're on this charted path, following All these right. ships, I bet that mm. they just have to go in that same, perhaps already designed conduit. There are speeds that are faster than light. Are there not? Aren't they called tachyons? These are hypothetical particles. Okay. But yes. Hypothetical, David. Don't get carried away. <laughs> and Dolly. Destiny is powered by stars. Uh, she literally dips into these giant balls of gas and refuels herself. Is this um, conceivable? And uh, uh, what would a real ship need to take advantage of this? So stars, in general, come in at temperatures of 2,500 to 40,000 degrees Kelvin. Sounds so, like Los Angeles. 2,500 oh, is about, just for those of you who don't talk in Kelvin, uh, around 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. There are elements that don't hit their melting point until higher than that. Do, do you remember what color this star was? My impression is that it was a yellow star. It sure like, looked like a yellow dwarf to me, the ones that we've seen. So, yeah. Okay, so now we're talking more like... 5,800 degrees Kelvin. So that puts it out of the range here. I mean, I, I was looking up melting points of material, uh, boron, iridium, molybdenum, mm-hmm. osmium, <laughs> tungsten. Mm-hmm. You're, you're melting all of those before uh, 3,500 degrees Kelvin. Carbon graphite is the highest one that was listed on this table. That's about 4,000 degrees before it reaches its melting point. That's, that's nice. Yeah. Um, there are a few that may be higher. You could do uh, a nickel-based super alloy, um, ceramics, some sort of ceramics. Um, there, there are a few different things. Carbon polymer nanofibers that could make up materials that wouldn't melt at mm. these temperatures. But it doesn't look like the ship is made out of these. Uh, It looks like metal. It looks like steel to me. It sounds like steel Mm. when they walk on the decks. Uh, Uh What do you think? 
Well, the outer shell of the ship has to be... You're saying the outer, the outer shell of the ship must be made of some pretty strong stuff to withstand these temperatures. Well, more than that, even, because then you have to bleed the heat away somehow. Mm. Um, a, a star gives off a lot of energy. I, <laughs> I don't think that people quite understand how much energy that is. And I think this is a case where that scene and, and Brush saying, you know, destiny is powered by the stars themselves, that is so incredibly effective. I like it. It's just not very realistic. Okay. I mean, not only would they have to protect the inside of the ship and keep it at a cool temperature, but they would have to find a repository for all this energy somewhere in the ship itself. Uh, we have a lot to learn about Destiny, though, and the ancient technology, uh, we don't have a clue how some of that works. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not ruling it out. I'm just saying... At our current level of civilization, I can't even imagine how they would do it. Mm. And this is the oldest version of ancient tech that we've seen. So. Would it possibly compensate for some of that, that temperature uh, issue uh, if you factor in the, the, the shields on the ship, the energy-based shields that are obviously just sort of a, of a science fiction conceit? And kind of, I would think so say a lot of different things about shields and what they can and can't do. <laughs> right. Yeah, there are personal shields, at least uh, on Atlantis. I mean, there are... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are all kinds of shields that we've seen in this Stargate franchise. Shield technology is something that's just really way beyond anything we can imagine. That's, mm-hmm. There just isn't yeah. a good way to do that at all. And it seems like at that point, when we start seeing things like shield... Uh, energy shields and, and energy-based weapons, you really know that you're in science fiction. Right. Well, we can have energy-based weapons now. We do. But you mm-hmm. sort of have to plug them in cool. or wear a massive backpack. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they require a lot of power. Yeah, yeah and then you could only fire okay. once. <laughs> so, right. And I don't mean, cross the streams. Oh, don't start me on that. <laughs> Dan, you mentioned um, uh, ceramic and ceramic polymers, which just made me remember uh, Heroes yeah. in the seventh season of SG-1. This is something that we saw on the show. We were trying to come up with an Earth-based, um, uh, you know, sort of a... a well, you're fighting ghouls, you don't shoot bullets. So, Plasma. Uh, some, something better than, than Kevlar uh, right. for protection for our guys when we're out there on those planets. Um, you know, something that can take a staff blast, which is, which is superheated plasma. Um, right. What did you think about that? Well, I think borosilicate glasses would be the way to go. They have um, low coefficient of thermal expansions, and there there can be some the the boron carbides. They're hard. They're tough. They use them for tank armor, and they use them for bulletproof vests, also like Kevlar. So there are ceramics and and things along this line that would do very well for that. Well, I feel smarter. <laughs> <laughs> The communication stones. Um, th- this was probably a real, real sci-fi conceit, but transferring one's consciousness over distance across the cosmos, clear across the universe, how conceivable is that? This has been dealt with a, for many years on all sorts of levels by science fiction authors. Instantaneous telepathy, basically, mm. or Orson Scott Card uses it in his Ender's Game universe. The thing that I don't appreciate is it always takes some time for information to travel. And mm. you 
that look back time that you just throwing out the door instantaneous communication to me is impossible at these distances because information has to has to travel from here to there mm. um, I I like the communication stones and I, I've read enough to know that most of the Stargate Universe fans really don't like the communication <laughs> stones. but I, I think that's one of the conceits that the program has to have you have to give them something that will help tell the story that's what you're really trying to do is tell yeah. the story the best way possible yeah. and of course we say this talking on Skype from Los Angeles to Pittsburgh to Scotland instantaneously Right. So Destiny has been out there for millions of years, traveling through the stars. It's become a real... I mean, she's a creature of, the, of space. Um, what hardware would this ship require to sustain itself for millions upon millions of years that we haven't encountered yet? I mean, sometimes, they've, they've said that, you know, sometimes the, the distance between two galaxies is too much for her to refuel, so she ends up drifting. And then eventually she gets to the other galaxy and refuels again, and then she moves on. Um, so how's, I mean, how, how would a ship survive by itself for millions upon millions of years out there? Right. The spaceship itself was probably built in space as opposed to being built on a planet, right? We'll, we'll take that as a given. Uh, when we build spaceships, we think about cost. Mm. I don't think they had to think about cost. Uh, we have to think about the availability of materials. I don't think they had to worry about that. We worry about resistance to temperature changes, and they certainly didn't have to worry about yeah. that. <laughs> Ease of fabrication. There you go. They could do anything and manipulate matter to their will. I don't think that was a problem. Weight's not a problem. But durability, that's the big one. So millions of years in terms of... As an astronomer, that's a blink of an eye. I mean, pretty much nothing changes in the universe in millions of years as as stars go. But for this, I mean, what materials they used, I mean, that was the big one. What do they have to put up with? They have to put up with radiation. They have to put up with meteorites, meteorite strikes. Yeah, mic- being hit. Right, micrometeorite strikes that just pepper them. Mm. Um and the thing that I don't understand is that they didn't build the ship to do this without passengers. They built that ship to do it with them, and then they ascended yeah. at, at some point after it was launched. So I'm surprised it's still going. I'm surprised that there was still air in the room when they first crossed over. Mm-hmm. I mean, air oxygen, nitrogen, breathable atmosphere, that's very corrosive. Oxygen is very corrosive. So any of those metals would have long since rusted away or decomposed. Mm -hmm. Gaskets, seals, rubber, glue, whatever else they were using besides metals. I'm not sure that this ship was designed for this. It's amazing that it's in as good shape as it is in my opinion. But of course you need a show, so it's a you look at the exterior of the ship and you can see that it's just been pelted there are shield barriers everywhere it's clear that they were they were planning on uh filling the ship with a crew the the ship was not designed for extensive self-repair it looks like 
Um, it doesn't regenerate necessarily. Maybe those are systems that are that will be brought online later. But it, it definitely, they definitely, the ancients built it to um, to need them. Right. I mean, I think there are robots that they will uncover later that are domestic cleanup robots. They have revealed one. So um, I think that's what we'll find. Or we may find, we know they had nanotechnology. There was the virus on Atlantis that was a nanotech virus attacking the ancients. So my thought is that they knew how to also work with nanotechnology. Mm. Uh, and there could be some repositories of like a tin of made robots that they all they have to do is open and yeah. <laughs> get back to normal. I'm surprised that things are going on the way they're going. Uh, they're discovering new parts of the ship that look so brand spanking new. There's no dust. There's no corrosion. There may be some broken parts or not powered parts or holes in the ceiling out into space yeah. with just a little energy shield over it. I would expect more dust, and maybe it's just because the ship has never been populated, uh, that it was sort of just some, you know, hermetically sealed at some point before it was launched. I love the design of this vessel. I think it it's one of the neatest ships that have come out in, of science fiction in a long time, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I actually like the bedrooms, and it's amazing <laughs> to me that they would have such similar ideas about what a bedroom was that we have. Yeah, little things like that have always irritated me about the show, and irritated Brad, too. I mean, he's, he's always talking about, like, ha- do handles have to look like handles? I mean, I mean, you go to Atlantis, and you see the chairs, and all the chairs are on casters. And there's, there's just so much that you... There's only so much that you can do. You know, to, at, at what point do you just say, ah, screw it, you know, we've got... We're, we're spending too much time on these little details. They're, they don't get enough screen time anyway. Let's not worry about that. Let's let's concentrate on the bigger picture. Let's concentrate on making aliens that swirl in in sandstorms and and you know uh, ships that can that can fuel themselves by the the natural bodies of energy that exist in the universe. I mean, it all that that is the big stuff. Right. I I really like how he's got that. There's no single dominant villain alien race. Yes. So we're gonna see new things all the time. I mean, yeah. This uh, conversation has brought up so much interesting stuff, and we made it a show about SGU, and obviously there's plenty in SGU uh, to talk about, but it makes me think of all sorts of questions related to Atlantis and SG-1 and the science of of the Stargate universe that's been just sort of been built one Lego brick at a time over the course of the last 13 years. Mm, At least, yeah. I'd love to have you back, Diane. Thank you so much for spending this (laughs) afternoon with us. I've had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me, seriously. Well, very special thanks to Diane for joining us for this week's conversation, and and I think pretty much uh, being this week's conversation, I didn't really have a whole lot to contribute, just (laughs) listening and, and filling my brain and making myself smarter as I go. And our thanks to Diana Botsford, uh, my buddy and pal for, uh, allowing us to make that connection. Diana introduced the two of us and said, you know what? She would be great for your show. Have her on your show. So cool, cool. we did. Uh, let's get to some listener mail this week. Hi, Darren and David. This is Eric Summerer from the Dice Tower podcast. And this is kind of an off-the-beat question for you guys. Uh, I'm curious if either of you have played the Stargate SG-1 board game. This was the one produced by uh, Fleet Games. 
I owned it for a little while. I didn't really enjoy the game. I felt like it, it missed the point. It didn't really capture the feeling, the exploration, and the adventure of Stargate. It was just kind of a risk knockoff, a, a war game style. It was all about the space battles and, and lacked the real feel of the show. I have seen the board game being played, but I have never played it myself. Um, I was really excited when this came out. And I saw it at one of the creation conventions. I think it was probably my first convention in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, I think you and I both saw it being played there. I saw it there, yeah. And and it looks interesting, uh, but yeah, I think Eric's right. I'm, I'm not sure if it really captured... I, I, I have not played it, but it didn't seem like it necessarily captured what you would call the spirit of SG-1, the, the exploration, you know, walking through a Stargate to a planet... Uh, sort of what what SG-1 was about, at least in the early years. And this was early years. This was before our fleet of ships really became a a prominent part of the show. Um, And I'm not sure how you would do that on a board game. But yeah, it kind of felt to me like uh, a Stargate-branded sort of Solar Quest. You ever play Solar Quest? No. That was like an outer space monopoly. Hey, Darren and David. This is Nathaniel from Atlanta. In regards to the podcast hiatus, I just wanted to say... No! I am a huge fan of your podcast, and I gotta admit that it was weekly episodes of the Gatewell podcast that got me through the Stargate drought between Atlantis and SGU. I, I hope you take that as a positive. I mean, I'm gonna be able to live without it, but uh, I'm sorry to hear that. I also wanted to throw out an episode suggestion to y'all. Towards the end of the rotating topics last summer, it came up a couple times talking about um, Earth episodes. Yeah, you know, mainly for SG-1 and SG Atlantis, just the fact that some episodes were set entirely on Earth. And you guys were kind of uh, a little bit negative about that. I actually, uh, I enjoy those. Uh, and I thought it would be interesting to discuss that, the idea of, an, of episodes being set entirely on Earth. Episodes set on Earth. What do you think about that as a podcast topic? I think that that's a worthwhile topic. Should add it to our inventory of potential topics in the Powerball spin thingy. As much as I have complained about them, I think that that would be a good thing to talk about. Well, we can air those, uh, air those issues and, and talk about some of the really good episodes, too. So, David, we have but two hours of the GateWorld podcast remaining for the summer. Next week is July 28th, and on show 99, we're going to talk about ancient history. Yes, a lot of stuff to talk about. That's at least one show right there. Yeah. Between the three series, uh, we, we, lo- we know a huge amount of backstory on the ancients, the super advanced race that created the Stargate network and then ascended. So this is going to be a different, uh, sort of a different style. We usually uh, have a discussion that's sort of uh, a, you know, opinion-based, back and forth. This is kind of more like a Stargate 101, so I'm, I'm going to call it the first in our potentially ongoing series of Stargate 101 uh, where we're just going to talk through the facts. We're going to give sort of a back-and-forth lecture, I think, discussion about everything that we've learned about the ancients so far. So our question for our uh, 99th episode, Ancient History podcast, is what is your favorite episode, character, or element of the ancients and their backstory? And what is it about the ancients that you find most interesting? Send us that information at 951-262-1647, or you can email an audio snippet of yourself to webmaster at gateworld.net. Very good. And August 4th? August 4th is the big one zero zero, the 100th episode bash. 
of the Gate World Podcast, celebrating two years of uh, excellence in broadcasting. That's what <laughs> two years of excellence in broadcasting. <laughs> so yeah, we're just uh, we're gonna get some of our, our friends on here, uh, still lining up just who that's gonna be. But uh, hopefully, if you've been with us from the beginning, uh, some faces or in this case some voices, voices. That you recognize and, and remember uh, and just talk about Stargate and talk about SGU in the last year and next year and I don't know shoot the breeze everything that's to come good time. there will be alcohol sir really well get me a diet soda that's our August 4th show and then once again we're going to take uh, about six weeks off I think for the rest of the summer and we'll come back in mid-September and do one or two shows before the season premiere of Stargate Universe Maybe, just maybe, you'll have some podcasting to fill that void. We'll see what's happening. We've got a few plans in the works. There are pieces falling into place, and we should hopefully be ready quite soon for some sort of podcast Announcement. Everything is proceeding as we have foreseen. And once again, if you want to leave us some voice email on this week's listener question about the Ancients or anything Stargate-related, you do have two more episodes to get in before the summer hiatus. The hotline number is 951-262-1647. And there's some sort of a podcast feedback thread over at GateWorld Forum that you can pop in and say hello at. Hello, I see you there. And as always, look at the show notes on GateWorld.net this week for episode number 98, The Science of SGU. Good times. That was fun. From GateWorld, this is Darren. This is David. We'll see you back here next week for more of the GateWorld Podcast.